0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Your Mark on the World show. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe. I'm a Forbes contributor covering social entrepreneurship and impact investing, and today we have an extraordinary guest with us. Brett Durbin is the executive director of the Trash Mountain Project, and it is so much worse than you think it is. You do not want to miss this episode.
1: Welcome to Your Mark on the World, bringing you another changemaker with champion of social good, Devin D. Thorpe.
0: Brett, welcome to the show. I just can't wait to learn more about what you're doing to address these uh, problems of uh, the people uh, living in and working on these massive trash piles in uh, and around some of the world's biggest cities, but uh, welcome to the show, Brett. We're thrilled to have you.
2: Well, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's an honor to uh, be on and, and be able to share a little bit about what we're doing. Tell us about the problem
0: for a minute, if you would.
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's something that's starting to get a little more visibility. So I think uh, some people have a little bit of, uh, maybe a little bit of background in hearing about this. But it's it's not something that we see uh, in the United States. And most Western Euro- European comp- or countries and more developed countries, you don't see it when we have a little bit more... Um, Uh, just stricter policies and laws in place on how we deal with waste and when you have a uh, a country that doesn't have very strict policies um, what we found was uh, it was actually just a trip I was asked to go on about 10 years ago uh, down to Tegucigalpa Honduras and um, I honestly had never heard of what we now call a trash dump community Um, but it's it's basically a situation where um, they're there really isn't any, any policies or guidelines on how waste is disposed of. Uh, and so the landfill itself uh, will look very similar to what we would see in the States, maybe not as layered and done as more of a sanitary landfill. Um, but it's, um, it's, it's a dumping ground, and you have uh, something that occurs in a lot of these places is usually it's around a big city um, because the dump is much larger. Uh, there's more there to pick through, and so you have uh, people that can't find any work anywhere else Um, will kind of flock to these areas. I mean, if you just picture a dumpster diving situation uh, is a much smaller scale, but um, you have families that actually start kind of you know, migrating into these areas and what we call a trash dump community would be basically where uh, an urban sprawl has kind of happened um, surrounding a landfill. And um, it's not something that's really regulated so you can just kind of come and go as you please. Age doesn't matter in most of the places. Um, even ones that say they have policy on no one you know under the age of sixteen um, we see kids as young as you know two and three years old uh, picking through the trash with their families um, but that was kind of the thing I think that caught me caught me off guard versus just people picking through trash was um, just the uh, the widespread uh, age group uh, from you know, babies on up through uh, senior citizens uh, doing this and just trying to eke out an existence. Really, it's there, and they're doing what you would think they'd be doing. They're looking for something that's um, resellable, recyclable, um, or they can you know take as food. Maybe it's old food that's not quite as rotted, uh, and they can they can eat that, or they find clothes or any anything of value. Uh, that's what they're picking for, and so. Um, that is the uh, that's kind of what I stumbled into it wasn't something I was looking for but um, when I was seeing the different layers of the problem and how big this problem was I started researching it and finding it and really at this point we know it's around two-thirds of the uh, countries throughout the world um, have some level of this uh, varying levels of severity but um, from just a handful of families that are just kind of doing that to, to make a living uh, to, you know, where you have 100,000 people surrounding uh, one of these dumps. And so, um, unfortunately, it's uh, – they're not safe places, as you can imagine, health-wise, it's a major problem. Um, lots of uh, metals, toxins, poisons uh, that they're constantly in contact with. Uh, uh, along lot animals. Yeah. Was that in waste? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's waste. Just...
0: yeah. yeah. So I, I imagine it's just um... – by any measure you and I would have used from our experience in the developing world, we're talking about hell on earth, right?
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. There was actually a New York times writer that that's what he called it. He said, this is the closest thing to hell on earth uh, I've ever seen. Uh, and cause you also have like smoke, it's burning from underneath and it's just got this real hellish feel to it. Honestly, that's a great, great word to use about it. So. Yeah. Just, just horrible. And of course I, I don't want to in
0: any way diminish the human tragedy, the human toll that we're talking about, but this is also an environmental disaster.
2: Oh, 100%. Um, you know, it's funny. I went down, and, you know, my background, um, you know, I was actually a, a pastor, uh, a college pastor at the time, and I, I, I left that to, to do this. But, you know, the human element of it is what drew me in. But then as the, the further I've gotten into it, I realized, you know, the, the environmental factor is what defines this problem. So if there wasn't a waste problem like this, there wouldn't be the, hum, the humanitarian problem. And so they're very interconnected. I mean, there's, there's no way to separate the two. So.
0: And it's such a powerful insight. Brett, tell us about what you're doing now to address these problems. I mean, it, it seems so daunting, so overwhelming that it's scary to any of us to even try and wrap our minds
2: around this. Yeah. You know, we've, we've had to start small, obviously, just as we we're we're doing a lot of learning. Um, We've been at this for a little more than eight years now, and um, it's going to be a constant learning curve uh, in every place that we're at because every culture is going to be different too. And and how these problems can be addressed. But um, inevitably the starting point is there's, there's someone there wanting to do something, Um, whether that's a, a teacher that has come in that wants wants to teach some of the kids and get them into school, or it's a a pastor or a church or a, uh, a humanitarian group, or, you know, there's any number of ways you find a leader that's there trying to do something. They just typically don't have the resources to do what they would really like to do to address some of the problems. Um, And so a lot of times when we come in and see it, you do see very, um, urgent needs, you know, we talk about kind of relief versus development. Um, a lot of times you, you have to do some of these relief efforts. I've, I've compared it to, we, we've we gone and helped with some disaster relief that were around these areas, but you go into a, a disaster after a, you know, a, a hurricane or cyclone or tornado, we actually look at that and say, well, that's kind of the everyday in these places. I mean, it's, that's the scary part about it is it doesn't look a whole lot different in those places when a hurricane comes through. And, and so, what we've seen is we do have to address some of those urgent, you know, you're talking about feeding kids that have no food. You're talking the nutrition and health side of things. You need to address those things. You need to be able to provide education. But on a much grander scale, we, we have to be looking towards the top of the waterfall, so to speak, and say that actually policy is what has, has created this, uh, this monster, so to, so to speak, Um, yet it's not as easy as just closing a dump. A lot of people ask, like, why don't you just close the dump, sir? If they change the policy, it'll be fixed. The problem is this has become an economy. And so if you were to just go in and close a dump, which has been done in several places, we've documented, um, you just destroyed an entire economy uh, with people that are counting on that for their livelihood. Now, that livelihood is not what we want them doing, and there should be better options, but if you just do away with it instantly with no – you know kind of set up and strategic way of doing it then you've you've almost created a, another issue then you're going to have to deal with and so there's a lot of levels to it it's it's definitely very complex uh, what you have to do in addressing uh, when addressing these things and so yeah
0: can you give us an example of an individual or family you've helped and how you helped them
2: yeah um, you know, for us, we, we, you know, we even say in our mission statement, you know, working with children and families, I think for us, usually the most vulnerable we find in these areas um, for a lot of different regions, you can probably imagine, uh, is the kids, is, you know, uh, babies preschool uh, on through, you know, uh, K through 12. We want to try to help the families with some of the needs those kids kids have. Most of the parents want their kids getting an education, but because of the situation, they have to work. Um, they have to go and pick through the trash for twelve hours a day, and so we want to we want to go in and address that. And so, you know, one specific family we've had—I mean, it's it's a pretty incredible story. There's a um, there's a a whole family of kids. There's four kids, um, and the parents have put them in a program that we partner with in Honduras. And uh, one of them has has graduated high school. Another one actually just did uh, a week ago, and so two of them now have. And one thing we've seen is that if we can kind of Help the family through the kids. It seems to do a huge transformation within the family itself and they have all left uh, working on that trash dump at this point to do other things Um, and we've tried to give opportunities for livelihood training technical training for the parents um, to help get them into a different career um, get them into a different career path. And so um, we have a lot of families we could we could point to that story Um, that typically is what we've seen to this point. on a, on a macro scale, it would just be uh, the the simple difference nutrition makes uh, for these families. I mean, the brain function for the kids, um, being able to learn, having a drive to learn, um, you know, and so uh, that would be, I would say that's kind of the, the typical success story we've seen is just you see a, a true transformation within the family to walk away from that life on their own accord and their own choice. It's not something we're telling them to do. Um, last thing you want to do is is minimize what they're doing. I mean, this is their livelihood, and so you don't want to go in and say, oh, you poor thing. Um, you want to go in and look at them like they're a human, and um, a lot of them don't feel they are anymore. That's, that's the hardest part about this job is having a kid tell you that they feel like they're a, a part of uh, the trash uh, is, I mean, I, I talk about it all the time, and I still get emotional talking about it. It's just a difficult thing to see. Uh, they've lost – some of them really have lost – their sense of humanity, which is none of us uh, should be okay with that. So
0: Boy, boy
2: that, that's for sure.
0: So with, clearly one of those big problems that the kids face is nutrition. How do you address the nutritional problems? I mean, this is a big problem, especially when you're talking about large communities of people uh, who are uh, not getting adequate good food.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, a lot of times, too, it is it is simply what's available in these communities is, um, you know, <laughs> it, it's a lot of uh, sugary starches. It's, um, you know, if the kids have a few pesos, dollar cents, whatever, um, they're going to typically buy what normal kids would buy, which would be candy and other things like that. And and what they're eating at home is is usually not very high in nutritional value. And so um, you see drastically underweight. And, um, you know, I'll look at a kid and think, wow, that they must be six and they're actually 12. Um, And when you see that one thing we've done is, is the programs that we try to to come alongside with is um, almost every one of these leaders that's trying to do something there wants to provide food for these kids. And so we've helped with some of the resourcing on that, but with not with a long-term goal of, okay, we're just going to pay a bill for food for the rest of time. You know, that's, that's not the goal, but as they see a, see progress with their kids. They're they're getting a nutritious meal at school or at the program we have. A lot of times it's two meals in a day. Um they they change so much that the family actually starts looking at nutrition as an important thing because for a lot of them they've never had that option because that kind of food isn't even available in the community. Um as you can imagine It's not somewhere that grocers or anyone that's selling, you know, good nutritious foods are wanting to come into. Uh, This is also a place where I've seen one police officer in 54 trash dump communities over nine years. Um, This is, it's not a place where things are safe. Uh, Even police don't really feel safe there in most scenarios. Um, And so businesses aren't going to want to come in there and bring that. So for us, it's almost like we want to be able to, you know, uh, come up with ways that those foods can even be brought into the community if they want to buy them or if we can provide them at a, at a fair wage um, so that they can start getting or teach them be there and partner with people there's there's always farmers and others there that would love to to help them develop that in their own backyard so I mean there's ways of, of doing it that are effective and more long term too so
0: yeah. it seems to me that one of the challenges you face or see is that uh, these trash piles in some locations are spilling into waterways that connect into our oceans. And so a, a trash pile in Honduras may be feeding pollution and garbage that's washing up on uh, a beach in California or Texas, depending on which coast it
2: washes away from. How do we deal with that? And what are you doing about it? (laughs) Uh, You are then talking uh, about a pretty, uh, the high up uh, policy change. Um, There has been one example of that would be um, there's a really famous trash dump community in Manila, uh, Philippines uh, called Smoky Mountain. Uh, Usually when people find out what we do, um, a lot of times Filipinos will bring that up that live Filipino Americans um, and or people who've traveled there, they've heard about it or seen it. It's had a lot of press good and bad press. Um, Sometimes it's pretty exploitive, um, you know, kind of irritating press at times, but, um, but it's known. And what happened was they got so much pressure from the international community on that dump because it's right on the edge of the Bay in Manila. And so when you'd walk through there, there's this huge community of people, but then the trash and the, the ocean don't, there's no separation whatsoever. And so you just, it's this just terrible, polluted and you see kids swimming in at me you're looking at it thinking man if I put my head under that water I don't know if I'd make it home kind of thing I mean it's yeah. very very polluted and so they actually had to move that dump um, I guess I shouldn't say they had to they chose to um, with a lot of pressure um, but they closed it down and moved it to a different place and so I think a lot of times with the oceanic life and the pollution that happens there Um, we just need to make a decision and maybe it's as a global community that we cannot have landfills right on the edge of our, of our, of our oceans. I mean, or any kind of major, you know, uh, water source, you know, rivers, creeks, all of it pours in. Just like you said, it has this, this effect that kind of just spills down into the city or down into the, uh, the ocean and then it kind of goes everywhere, you know? And so uh, it's a major problem and I think a lot of it is visibility. It's people knowing about it. And, you know, saying something, you know, and the good thing is what I've seen is there's such a huge discussion right now, obviously with uh, environmental issues, uh, green initiatives, whatever you want to call it um, uh, good or bad in terms of the conversations and and the arguments, I'll tell you what, there's, there's so much that does need to be done we're going to be dealing with a much bigger issue uh, on a much bigger scale, uh, not far into the future. And so um, it's, decisions need to be made and policies need to be put in place where this isn't even allowed as a global community, that it's right on the edge of an ocean. So that's a huge problem.
0: What are you most proud of having accomplished?
2: Oh, well, um, I, I think for me, and and definitely where we would vary from maybe humanitarian uh, group, um, which we're trying to get more and more involved with humanitarian groups and partner with them because again, these issues are so interconnected. Um, on the human side of it, I think it's, I mean, a lot of this comes from my own you know, beliefs and my, my faith that's kind of driven me to this point, but, um, but we're all part of a global family. And uh, when you see a, especially a child, but I think even as a parent, as a dad, myself, uh, when you see a, Um, a family, whether it's a dad or it's a child or it's a mom, um, start to feel that they are somebody, that they actually have value. Um, I've gotten to watch that so many times at this point that it it, it way outweighs when I have to hear kids tell me that they think they're part of the trash or that the community around them, their culture believes they're trash. They're a forgotten people. Um, And when you see them, like the light bulb turns on. All of a sudden they realize they have value they realize they can they can give something uh, to this whole thing called community and um, that to me is when I see that that's that's the greatest accomplishment I think I I will ever see is that if I have a hand in that in any way and if this organization can help that in any way and to see people find their value uh, we've to me that's that's a good day so
0: for sure Well, clearly, the work you're doing is inspiring, and and many people look up to you and admire you. They're grateful for the work you're doing. Who do you look up to and admire as a role model? (laughs)
2: Oh, like on a global scale or on a a personal scale? (laughs) Pick your scale. Um, I would say my heroes, if I was to choose my heroes, I'll just call it that. It is the people that actually work in these communities, Uh, the leaders, I have, you know, I kind of look at it as, you know, I I complain sometimes that I have a – my job is weird because I have a a foot in two different worlds, two very different worlds. Um, I have one foot in in what are, even by their own culture, considered below the poorest of the poor. It's kind of this whole different subculture. Um, And then I have another foot that a lot of times is in the the wealthiest, you know, living rooms in America um, because we have, you know, generous people that are giving – to help make this happen. That is a weird uh, dichotomy that you have to deal with. Um, But I still feel like that's a lot easier than the leaders that we work with overseas that are in these communities that move into them physically and invest in these families and invest in that community. You know, I I think uh, I look at those, those individuals, those men and women, as they have given up their life uh, to, to serve the, you know, the least and forgotten people on this planet. And so that's who I look up to. I, I learn from them every time I'm in these communities and I don't think they realize they're teaching me, but it, it sure helps me to, uh, uh, I guess in, in some reality be, a, um, I guess give more of, of myself and not get too, uh, worked up about the things in my own life. And so, yeah, I hear you. You know,
0: it's not hard to understand why someone should be doing what you're doing. It is not hard to understand that this is a tragic problem of epic proportions that someone should tackle. Yeah. How on earth did you come to the conclusion that that someone was you? (laughs)
2: Um, It wasn't easy because I looked at myself as a a 29-year-old kid at the time that uh, was, was still trying to figure out, you know, what it was I was supposed to be doing with my life, and um, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a faith-driven uh, decision, but at the same time, um, I, I had a really good mentor uh, that was a professor of mine. In grad school, and um, I I called him and told him what how much this had messed me up, and it's like, man, something's got to be done, and I I can't find anyone doing this, and he's like, well, don't start anything new. The last thing we need is another uh, nonprofit organization, and I said, I agree, 100%. Let's we'll start there, and so, you know, I I tried to find someone else and join them. Um, That was the first step, and I spent four or five months just. I mean, diligently researching, trying to find an organization that was focused on trashed up communities specifically. And I thought this this would be easy, you know. And what I found was there's some large organizations that maybe have part of what they do is in maybe one of those communities where they do clean water in one of those communities. So I didn't find anyone that was focused on that issue itself. And so after a lot of frustrating months, I went back to him. I said, I can't find anybody. He said, well, I guess – you know, if you decided you, tell me what I can do to help, you know, and and so it took uh, took about eight or nine months of, of a lot of conversation with my my wife and people I look up to um, people I trust and prayer and and you name it. I, I was kind of almost forced into the conclusion and um, and it's it's something that fortunately I have I have my passion for has grown every year. Uh, And so it's not something that I, I see myself ever walking away from until we see much better solutions than we're seeing right now. And so that would be, that was kind of the process, I guess. I'm, I'm not the smartest person. I don't have the greatest background in this. Uh, Fortunately, I've been, I've been uh, surrounded by a lot of people that know so many different areas that are involved in this complex issue that um, hopefully, uh, hopefully my own inabilities at times won't get in the way. Um, But um, I appreciate the opportunity. Honestly, I think it's just—it's uh, been an interesting and uh, uh, adventurous ride. So, Brett, what is your superpower? <laughs> Say that again. What is your superpower? My superpower. Oh wow. Um, what's yours?
0: <laughs> no, no,
2: no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I ask the questions. You answer them. <laughs>
2: My superpower? Oh my! Uh, I'd have to ask my kids that. Um, you know, if I was if I was to to pick a to pick a word, I would say I'd say relationship. Um, and I know that doesn't sound like a superpower. I can't fly. I can't shoot things with my eyes. Um, but I think relationship and just knowing the value um, and the, of human beings and the compassion that comes out of that. I would say that would be, um, I hope that's my superpower um, and that uh, I don't let my own self value and, uh, and pride get in the way at times. And so um, we'll just say uh, relationship uh, built on compassion. So.
0: Oh, fantastic. Well, Brett, I really want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today, for sharing your story. I commend you for the work you're doing. Before you go, would you take just a minute and tell people how they can learn more about what you're doing or find a way to support you?
2: Sure. Um, Yeah, uh, easiest way, I mean, just like with most is, uh, you know, check out our website to start. Um, It's just TrashMountain.com. There's uh, a lot of information on there. Um, You know, we love working with – you know any number of different organizations, churches, schools, businesses. Um, I'd love to talk to you. Uh, honestly, those are the favorite part of my day is when someone is wanting to know more about what this is. And so, um, so yeah, you can check out the website. All of our information's on there. Um, you know, information about how you can give obviously is you know, finances are always a need for any nonprofit. Um, But also if you want to learn more about how we handle that and uh, we're very strict on how we handle those things. And so I'd love to talk to you about it or one of our staff would. Um, But yeah, I'd say that's, that's the easiest way, you know, check us out on, on Facebook or um, any number of social uh, sites, but a good starting point would be trashmountain.com.
0: Fantastic. Well, Brett, again, we thank you for joining us. We commend you for your work and wish you every success in helping people transition their lives away from those trash mountains and toward more productive, healthy uh,
2: careers. Thank you. Appreciate you. And uh, it's meant a lot to be on here. So thank you. All righty. Let's do some good.
1: Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded via Google Hangouts on Air and is available at youtube.com forward slash Devin Thorpe. Subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher or iTunes by searching for Your Mark on the World. Every weekday, Devin hosts a CEO, celebrity, entrepreneur, or other change maker here on the Your Mark on the World show to inspire and prepare you to make your mark. Devin is a champion of social good, writing about, advocating for, and advising people who are doing good. He is a Forbes contributor who is a recognized thought leader in social entrepreneurship, impact investing, and crowdfunding. To book Devin as a speaker, visit devinthorpe.com. Learn more about Devin's work at yourmarkontheworld.com.